Well, good evening. Oh, didn't Pastor Scott do a great job tonight in worship? That was, that was great. That was wonderful. Uh, yes, I have to wear this brace. I don't have to wear it all the time. Um, but I have to wear it like when I'm playing the piano, things like that. But um, God bless you, Nikki. God bless you. It's not coffee? What, what crud are you bring it to me for? What's wrong with you? I'll taste it, but I won't like it. I can tell you right now. All right. So, um, so yes, I have to wear this brace because, like, last week I played the guitar, and it, it just about killed me by the time it was over. And uh, the doctors have told me that I'm doing too much, and I have to back off a little bit. And, um, and um, the surgery is fine. This, my bicep is fine, but my shoulder. Every time I talk to my mom, my, my mom says, how's your shoulder? Mom, it wasn't my shoulder. <laughs> Every time. Mom, it wasn't my shoulder. Oh, okay. All right. Bye-bye, baby. Uh, how's your shoulder? I'm praying for your shoulder. All right. <laughs> keep, keep praying for my shoulder. Mom. Moms. What are you going to do, right? <clears throat> yeah, like seven or eight times in 12 minutes. So, um, no, I'm, um, I really have been in pain a lot the last week, right? This nerve. This nerve that runs up here and goes through my bicep is very agitated because I've pushed it too hard. So, so now I wear this brace and I go to a nurse that sits there for 20 minutes and does that and I cry. And uh, she tells me about her family because I'm a pastor, so we counsel. So, <clears throat> all right. So we are continuing with um, Nehemiah chapter 2. Is Paul in here tonight? Because... No. <laughs> um, that's, yeah, he wants me to move faster, so, he, so I'm going to move faster tonight, he's not even here. So. Board members, what are you going to do? That's good. I like that. It's like a chai apple spice or something. Good. That's beautiful. All right, so <laughs> let's go back to, uh, let's go back to Nehemiah. Chapter 2, mind your own business, TV. So, uh, so now we've, we've talked about, we talked about Nehemiah coming from Jerusalem. Um, I mean, coming from, uh, um, to Jerusalem, my brain just locked up, to Jerusalem to fix the, to the wall, to rebuild the wall for the temple and all this stuff. And we've talked about a couple of the gates, and I want us to go a little bit farther, so we're going to read down through this. Uh, verse 11 of Nehemiah chapter 2. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate. We talked about the valley gate, that the valley gate goes down to where um, the, the valley of Himnon, where they used to um, sacrifice people back in the days before the Israelites got there, and they would actually... Um, murder babies. They would take their babies and dedicate them to the gods of, of Baal and Ashereth, and they would throw their living babies into a fire uh, right outside this valley gate. And we talked about the fact that God, that's the first thing that the Holy Spirit wants to rebuild. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to leave your broken past as define a definition of a direction of your future. Um, I, I have been enjoying watching um, um, Kara with her pregnancy and all the stuff that's involved with that, and just just how excited and pumped she is 
about the baby and all the different things with that. Um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty cool thing that God says, okay, I'm going to take you forward in life. I'm not going to hold you back according to whatever um, that, that, that Satan tries to tell you about your past. So then the next thing, past the jackals well, or we, these are some of the other different translations that use a different word there. Some of it was dragon's well, some of it was a serpent's well. And um, realizing the, the way I get, and again, the way that somebody names a well or a, or a moment or a space or something is because uh, something happened there. So this guy walks up to get a drink of water, and there's a snake curled around the well or maybe in the edge of the well or something like that. And, and, um, and so obviously they used that well for, for centuries after that, so the, the snake didn't stay there. And a nice little picture for us that even though Satan may be laying curled up, the Lord still wants you to have that, that living water, that, that freshness that water can bring there. And so that's the second gate. And so now we come to the next two gates now, okay? So I went over through the valley gate, past the jack- jackal's gate, the serpent's gate, and he's looking at all this stuff in, in the nighttime, looking at how what needs to be fixed. Remember, if he's representing the Holy Spirit to us and that he is, the Holy Spirit is wanting to come and fix the wall so that we can worship God, so we can go to the temple. temple's been rebuilt. Go to the temple to worship God then there's, there's broken stuff in our life that we have to figure out. Every, every human has this stuff. And this is the part where I just don't, I don't understand why we don't do a better job as human beings recognizing, hey, I've got some issues in my life. I've got some brokenness. And, and even when we do say, okay, I've got some brokenness, I've got some issues, I've got some things of, of my existence, the way I look at things, my past, whatever the circumstances but then also saying, but I don't have to stay there. And that's another major milestone forward. The first is getting people to recognize, admit, or, or go down the road of, I have issues in my life that are hindering me. Okay? I, I had this conversation years ago. I was, I was young. I was in early, mid-20s. I was a youth pastor of a church. And uh, my secretary at the time had just divorced her fourth husband. And, uh, and she comes to me, and she's upset about this, and she wants to counsel with me. You know, she's older than I am because she's been married four times. You've got to be at least a little older than the mid-20s. But uh, she comes to me, and she wants to talk about this. She says, and she says, I just don't know. I just can't pick these guys. There's something wrong with these guys. And I told her, and nowadays I would say it much smoother because I'm scared more of people today. But I told her then, I said, you're crazy. You know that, right? If you've been divorced four times, there might be something wrong with you. She, she didn't like that. She, didn't, she didn't, never came to me for counseling again which was okay by me. But here's the reality of this is the first thing is just to recognize I've got some issues. I've got problems. There's reasons why I do some of the things I do. There's reasons why I react in certain situations. There's reasons why I think about certain people the way that I do, process information the way. There's reasons for this. That's the first thing. Then the second thing is saying, do I want to change? And am I willing to go down the road that it takes. And sometimes I think, and I know from my own life, sometimes you start down the road and it's not as easy as you thought it was going to be. It's a lot more difficult. It's a lot more painful. And so you don't deal with stuff. You just pretend like it doesn't exist. It's easier that way. It's so much easier that way. Um, me and my middle son have a, a kind of a running joke with this um, because he's exactly like me. My oldest son's exactly like my wife, except all the giftings, talentings, and good looking stuff. But uh, he... My second son is like my mirror image, which is frightening because it's not playing out well for either one of us. But he'll tell me all the time, he says, that's right, Dad, we just kind of pretend like it doesn't exist, lock it up tight in here and hold it for years. Am I right? And I'm like, you're not wrong. But that's the thing, guys, is do we really, are we really interested in saying, God, I want you to change me. I need you to do something. 
And, and understand that he's the one who created you. He wired you, so he should be the one to, well, he's the best option for changing you. He can use a lot of other things. Use counselors, use psychiatrists, psychologists, use stuff, use, but at the end of the day, it's not about self-help. It's not about any of that stuff. In fact, we're going we're gonna to look at this before we get done tonight about self-esteem even with this. But, but um, So then the third gate he goes to, he goes over to the dung gate, okay? Um, excrement gate, the poop gate, that's what this is, right? I, I just think this is interesting that he takes time to talk about the poop gate, <laughs> that he goes over and he realizes you need to fix the poop gate, and I'm, and I'm processing this, and there's all kinds of stuff that, that I'm, you know, there's like when you go to a scripture like that, there's cross-references and all these other things. And, and it's interesting, some of the stuff that, that comes up scripturally when you do like cross-references of that little scripture or some of those sentences, that one or two sentences right in there, all the different things that happens. And so some of the stuff that I looked at is, and I, and I saw this stuff a couple years ago when Linda and I went to Israel. We, we walked by every single one of these different gates, and it looks out over specific things like that. And this gate literally is where they carried the poop out. That's exactly why they call it that. Because they didn't have running water and sewer systems and stuff like that. So they would, do I need to explain? You guys understand, all right? They just put, put in buckets, carry it out a wall, and then dump it outside the wall. Well, I've been on enough camping trips with enough guys out in the mountains that when you say 50-yard uh, perimeter, 75-yard perimeter, nothing is to be left in that circle. At 2 o'clock in the morning when it's 5 below and snowing, they go about 7 inches outside the front of the tent. Right? So he says this is one of the things that we're going to rebuild is we're going to rebuild all of the junk or the poop in your life. We're going to rebuild this stuff. We're going to let God do something bigger than your problems and your mistakes and the things that you're doing. And really the, the basic correlation here is the sin that's in our life, that he really wants to deal with the sin in our life. Um, I have this conversation regularly with people. This is one of the more common conversations is, you know, what is sin? How does sin operate? What is, you know, what can I do and not go to hell. And I mean, there's, there's different, lots of different layers to how people process the concept of sin and the concept of sin in our life. But here's the thing that I think escapes most people, that holiness is more about uh, relationship than it is anything else. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the biggest thing that happened is not that they did, couldn't eat of all the trees in the garden anymore or, or hang out there in, in, in Nirvana or any of that kind of stuff. The biggest thing is, and we miss this, oftentimes, is in 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, now you're looking through a dim glass, and you don't get to see God anymore. You don't see him face to face anymore. God came down and would talk to him all the time, would interact with him, walk. I don't know how God, the majestic, transcendent God above everything, literally walks in the garden with Adam and Eve and interacts with them, but he talks with them, he does it every single day, and he, and he hangs out with them. But then he also gives them space and lets them do whatever they want, take care of the garden and all these other things. And the biggest thing that happens immediately once they sin is they start recognizing what sin is and darkness and evil and separation, and it just shoves God away from them. It pushes him away. And that's the biggest thing that sin does, is it pushes God away. Because God's standing right there, and he wants to wrap his arms around us and connect with us. He wants to do all kinds of things. Think about this. God made us. He made us amazingly intricate, detailed, 
and, and so, so multi-layered and multifaceted. He made us in, in such a unique, wonderful way. And, and we would rather choose to walk our path, our way, rather than interact the way that God wants us to. In the fullness of how he has designed us, we would choose to walk on our own plans. We would choose to walk in our own path and our own way. I had this conversation recently. Somebody that, um, they don't live around here, but I've been, I've been uh, counseling with them uh, for quite a while now. And, um, and I was talking, she's a lady about 30 years old, and um, I was talking to her, and she said something about, well, there's no good Christian guys out there. And I said, that's not true. What if a guy said to you, there's no good Christian girls out there? So you'd be offended. Well, you bet there's plenty of more Christian girls in there. Are no. She said, well, then why aren't I meeting any of them? What do you think I asked her next? I already know her story, so I don't have to ask her, but well, why aren't I meeting any of these good Christian guys? What could be possible reasons? Where are you going to meet guys? You think all the guys, the good Christian guys, are hanging out at the clubs at 2 in the morning? Is that where they, where they hang out nowadays? Well, I, I went on some kind of uh, Christian something, I don't know, Christian Mingle, Christian Harmony, Christian Hook Me Up With Your Man dot com, I don't know what it was, but she said, I went on one of those sites, and she said, and I got this guy, I'm not making this up, okay, she said, I got this guy, and I'm looking at his profile, and all he's talking about is God, and Jesus, and worshiping the Lord, and taking his kids to church, and all that stuff, and I was like, ha! Oh. I said, what? You just said you can't meet any good Christian guys. Yeah, but he seems boring. You're right. Go back to the clubs. That's, that's all I got for you. It's weird how we can look at reality like that and just flip it around and say, no, I'm going to choose my path. See, this is one of the things that Satan deceives us with. This is why sin is such a big deal. The fact that, that sin also eventually leads to hell, that isn't a big issue, okay? I'm not, I'm not negating that. That's a big issue. But I think that, that sometimes we're so much more focused on the, just like the end game, like the, the black and white, the beginning and the end, that we're not thinking about all the relationship in the middle. We're not thinking about the daily walk. We're not thinking about the stuff that God wants to do. God has really big plans for every one of us. And he's doing the best he can all the time to unfold those plans in our life. And we're spending a lot of time and energy fighting against those plans, fighting against his spirit, fighting against his grace and mercy. We're fighting so that we can fight for our right to party, to quote some guys from the 80s. But we're, we're struggling so much to fight against what God's trying to do instead of, God, what, do you, what are you really trying to do here? What are you doing? One of the gates that, that Nehemiah comes to is this dung gate, and he says, we're going to fix that one too. We're going to fix that in your life. The Holy Spirit will fix the, the, the excrement of your life that keeps you just keep working toward and working through and all of this other stuff. It's amazing how easily we can choose that rather than, God, what do you got planned? God, what do you want to do? Next gate that we come to, <clears throat> sorry, let me go back. It says, we go through the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and the burned gates. Then I went down to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. I love this one. I go to the fountain gate. Now, this is one where I actually, um, when I was in, in um, 
Jerusalem, I actually stood for a little bit and, and pondered this little part of the wall and some of the other stuff. It's, it's interesting. When you, until I, you know, I'd read a lot of stuff and I'd seen a lot of pictures, but until I stood in Jerusalem, I didn't understand a lot of this kind of stuff. One of the coolest moments I had was when I was standing. Um, so, so the walls of Jerusalem come around. There's a, a, immediately coming out of the, of the walls of Jerusalem on this side of the city, it goes straight down to like the river and then comes back up. And coming back up on this side is the um, Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? So, so we s- sat for a little while in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there are trees there that they say are probably, were probably alive at the time of Jesus. These are 2,000-year-old trees. They're like little gnarled-up olive tree kind of things. And there's a, there's a little um, building, as you're, as you, if you're sitting on the hillside and you're coming down to the river and then going up to the wall of, of, of Jerusalem over there, there's a little building sitting there. It's not little, it's big, but sitting where I am, it looked little. And um, as you head down the hill and that little building there, I said there was a good chance that that building was probably there at the time of Jesus because of the time frame and everything else. But that's like the only thing really that you're looking at except the walls themselves that would have been there at the time of Jesus. Well, and even the walls were rebuilt, okay? And so I'm sitting there looking at this, and that, this uh, fountain gate that we're talking about, it comes down, uh, opens up right there and comes down. And, and by the way, if you look just a little bit to the right right here on the wall is the eastern gate. What's significant about the eastern gate? That's the, that's the, that's the gate that Jesus comes back through, Right? When he comes back to earth at the second coming, he walks through that gate. So you, some of you know, some of you may not know, but it's really interesting, man. I'm sitting there looking. At, I'd read a bunch of stuff about it, but what I'm actually looking at, it's very, it's very interesting. That gate has been walled over. Very thick, like four-foot solid rock walled over on both sides. Why? Because the anti-Jesus people, and specifically the Muslims who walled it up, said, Jesus ain't coming through this gate. So they wall it up. And then guess what they did? There's a cemetery right in front of it that literally comes right up to that. You can still see the opening and then it's walled up, you know, the big curve. And then it's walled up and then a big cemetery is sitting right there in front. Why? Because you can't, the Messiah can't walk through a, a grave. That's against the, the Mosaic biblical law. You can't walk through a graveyard or touch anything that has to do with the dead or whatever the case is. There's something they forgot, though. He can fly. Okay, Linda, that's not the answer, <clears throat> but close. The dead's going to rise. The dead's going to rise. I just, it's funny how human beings do things sometimes, right? We don't want Jesus to come back through, so we're going to wall it up. Like, like that's going to stop Jesus. Literally minutes, minutes before he walks through that gate, he stands on the side of the mountain right behind him, and it splits in two, and the river runs the other direction. If you can split a mountain in two, what's a little gate walled up? And then that we're going to build a cemetery so he can't get through that part too. All this was stuff was done over centuries. And Jesus is like, whatever, do what you got to do. Put crocodiles out there. Put moat, whatever you put spikes. Yeah, obviously the people that did all that are st- scared that he's coming. <laughs> and, or, and obviously they believe it. So, so right beside that is the fountain gate. 
And the fountain gate comes right down to the, to the Kidron Valley is probably what you've heard that called before. Um, it's the Kidron River. That river runs right there by the wall. That's where they would come out every single day and get fresh water. And this gate's all broken down. Now, why? I mean, we're, we're, we're looking at this two ways. We're looking at the real story, and then we're looking at this as a, as a um, kind of a visual to how the Holy Spirit rebuilds our brokenness. So why would this gate be important to us, the, the fountain gate, the, the gate that comes down to the river for fresh water every day? Not in a physical, real sense, but in a spiritual sense. Why would that be important for us? I did a lot of talking, and I asked that question like that. Okay, I'll say it. So I, the fact that we need and that this is something that should be expected they were coming through that gate every single day. Just like they're coming through the dung gate every day, they're also coming through the fountain gate every day. Now, here's the question. Which one would you rather come through? Obviously, the fountain gate. You're going to come down, you're going to get fresh water every single day. Remember when, the, remember when Jesus comes up to the lady at the well, and he's talking all these questions, all this stuff to her, and she's trying to sidetrack him? Because she knows her life's not, you know, it's got some craziness going on. It's got some, she'd been married like five times or whatever it was, and and, um, and, and he's just trying to get to, to inside of her. He's not concerned about all the stuff she's done. And she keeps sidetracking and changing the subject and, and talking about theology and all this stuff. And finally he says, I've got water that will last you forever if you'll just drink it. I've got, I've got truth that will sustain you. You're always going to want this physical water, and it's never going to sustain you completely. But I've got living water that's eternal It'll change you forever. And that's when it stops her cold. And, and of course, he's already told her, you know, you've been married four times. You're living with your fifth guy. And she, she's like, how did you know all this? And, and you know, you want to you be standing there and him go, I'm Jesus. But he doesn't say that. So in, in all of this, he says, I can give you living water. And then she gets it. She has this epiphany. That's what I need. That's what I need is living water. I don't. I've been trying all the relationship stuff. I've been trying all the world stuff. I've been doing everything by my rules. But I need this living water. That's when she runs back into the city and starts telling everybody, hey, I just met a guy that not only told me everything, but he changed my existence. Now, did Jesus change her existence? Yes, but not completely. See, she had to respond to what he was saying. Jesus tried to do the same thing with a lot of people. Um, some people, I would say most people responded, but a lot of people didn't. They had to respond to what he was saying. He can tell us truth. He can give us reality. <clears throat> he can help us <coughs> Excuse me, out of that. But there has to be a moment, and she has the epiphany. She has the, oh, I need this. Not only knowledge, not only cognitive, yes, I need this, but spiritual, emotional surrender that says, and I'm going to go there. I'm going to accept this. I'm going to do this. And this is one of the gates that he deals with. Now, it's really cool because here in this scripture, it says that, they, that, that, um, that he, he looks at the, the uh, fountain gate and, and right beside, were you interpreting my cough? Is that what you were doing? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> Shouldn't you do that with your hands? Okay. So, um, so uh, he makes me lose my train of thought sometimes. So right beside the fountain gate is... What is called right here in Nehemiah is the king's pool. 
Anybody know what other name that has by the time Jesus gets here? Uh, six, seven hundred years later when Jesus, well, a little bit more than that, about 800 years later when Jesus hits the scene, what is the name of that pool? Nope. That's what I thought. That's what I assumed. So I go and look and I do it, but it's not. And somebody write this down. Anna got that wrong. She never gets it wrong, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, write that down. Linda just got that right. Okay. Yes. Did you say Salome? Yes. Pool of Salome. Okay, so what happens at the Pool of Salome when Jesus gets there? Yes. Comes up to him, and, and this, this, uh, Jesus heals this guy right there at the pool. Now, here, here's something interesting that... Um, now, I got to see this in person, and I didn't really understand it. I don't know why, but I don't know why. Maybe it's just me. Maybe your personality is different. But there's a lot of things I've been teaching and process, and I know historically, I know geographically, and I know architecturally, but when I see it in person, it's different to me. I'm like, ah, oh, I've heard this revelation. Pool of Siloam, or what's called the King's Pool, the reason it was called the King's Pool originally is because, um, which king was it? Did I write that down somewhere? Um, I don't remember right now. I'll remember it in a second. But um, I'm good. It's because these are distance glasses. This is not a distance place. Oh, I'm oh I'm not at the right place. Okay, um, I'll think about it here in a second. But guys. God's going to judge you. I don't know. Um, but years before this, are you interpreting all that? Okay, good. <laughs> so the reason it's called the king's pool is because Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, years before, he builds this intricate um, conduit rock tunnel system underground a very long ways to bring water into the city so they wouldn't have to go outside the city down to the Kidron um, River to get the water. Now, why would that be important? Why would he need to do that? Security, that's the biggest reason, is because if you've got to go outside the city walls to get your water, when you get sieged, you're done in three days. That's basically it. And so he builds this intricate water system that comes into uh, the, the city of Israel and brings the water, brings fresh water into Jerusalem every single day. And that eventually becomes uh, the Pool of Siloam. A, a few centuries, quite a few centuries later, becomes the Pool of Siloam. And that's where Jesus, and that is sitting right beside um, this kid drawn, uh, this, uh, the um, fountain gate, which goes down to the Kidron River, which is where that water supply comes in the city. Uh, for this, and I, and I just think it's a really cool picture that when when the Holy Spirit starts working our lives, one of the things He's going to do is make sure that we have access to living fresh water. And I'm obviously talking spiritually uh, more than than physically. That He wants to make sure that we have access. This is why Jesus says this. Why he, this is why He constantly. This is why He says rivers of living water come out of us. Now, when we let God's word get in us, that it that it that it flows out of us like fresh water to people. 
That's why when you're really going through difficult circumstances and somebody really steps into your life and speaks, I'm saying really godly truth into your life and speaks his grace and peace into your life and tells you, shows you scripture or experience or something, that it can be so refreshing to you. That it's different than everything else. It's different than everybody else around you. In Philippians 4 where it says, the peace of God which goes beyond our natural understanding. That's, that's a huge thing about peace. True, pure peace in our spirit is more than just a mental, rational thinking. It's more than just a lack of, of negative or something like that. It's, it's beyond natural human understanding. And then he says that this peace which goes beyond our understanding guards our hearts the way we feel and our minds the way we think. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit can do that to us in a way that nothing else can. Nothing else can. My, my brother got on to me today, and um, so for you guys that don't know, <clears throat> my brother's special needs, and he calls me every day. And he called me today, and he was asking, uh, I, was, I was up here a couple hours before service, and, he, and he's asking me, so what are you doing? Um, on Wednesday night, did you, do you just stay at the church? He lives in Texas. And he's like, yeah, I just stay here. What are you doing? I'm, I'm working on my computer. I just got through reading. So what are you reading? So well, I was reading this book, and he goes, is that a... Is that a fiction book or is that, is that a Christian book? I said, well, it's a Christian book. Well, I'm, I'm hoping you read the Bible too. Like, I do. I do, John. I read the Bible too. He said, because you don't need to be filling your head with all that fiction stuff. You need to get God's word in your life. I'm like, you're right, John. I'm sorry. Whatever I just did, I am so sorry. But <laughs> Scott, he always says, Scott. You need to read the Bible. And I was like, you're right, John. But I thought to myself, you know what? He, there, you can't say more truth than what he just said. I hope, I hope somewhere in my 48 years of life I've convinced him I do read the Bible. But still, you can't, you can't get more truth than that. If you will get in God's Word and you let that truth get into your spirit and it starts rolling around in your spirit. And it's not just stories in the Bible. You really realize... This is power. There's something to this. There's, there's life that comes with God's word in a way that another book, no other book on the planet will ever do for you in the same way. And you let God's word get in there. It begins to, to, to be that river flowing around inside of your existence, bringing that peace to your heart and your mind. And then it begins to flow out of you, as scripture says, as rivers of living water to other people. Because now supernatural, God-given divine truth and, and uh, reality of his grace and his love and all these other things begins to be part of you, and then they begin to be something you can hand to somebody else. Not just, not just verbiage that you've memorized. Okay, you guys have heard me talk about this before. Lenin, um, uh, I just lost his first name, Russian Lenin. Vladimir, no, that was, is that Vladimir Lenin? That's Putin. Is that Lenin too? I don't know. So... Just translate whatever you want there. Uh, <clears throat> put the right things in. So Lenin, this is something that I ran across. I was probably early 20s youth pastor, and I'm reading this. Lenin, the guy that was responsible for, for one of the biggest anti-God, atheist mentality movements the world has ever seen, which was what uh, brought the idea of communism to the table. And communism can't exist without God being taken away, okay? Lenin could quote the entire New Testament word for word, start to finish. In fact, 
He, he had been tested on this at different times. You could literally say a sentence in, in the New Testament and stop at the end. Don't tell him where it is. Don't say just say a sentence and stop there. And he could start there, quote, to the end of the New Testament. Start back over and quote right back to there. So just knowledge alone doesn't do it. This, this thing is living. This thing is living. God's word is living in us. Do we let it become truth? Do we let it absorb into our spirit? Do we let it get into us and change us? That's why a simple sentence that says, the word of God have I hid in my heart that I won't sin against you, God. That when, you, when it becomes part of you, God's word actively combats the junk that Satan's trying to throw at you. It's actively doing that. Immediately you recognize, nope, this ain't right. This isn't healthy. This isn't truth or whatever. And, and if we don't have that, it's hard to, to, to disseminate that in today's society. There's so much junk so quickly coming at us at so many different angles. How do you know what's right and what's wrong? You get into God's word and his truth, and it will reveal to you. It will show you. This isn't right. That's not right. You may not even know why, but you know it's not right. So he comes to the fountain gate and he says, we're going to take care of that too. Now let's go back and continue reading. Now this is where, um, verse 16, I think it's uh, pretty important. He says, okay, the city officials did not know I had been out there or what, I, or what I was doing. These are the city officials for the city. This is Jerusalem. Remember, he comes to Jerusalem, comes from the other king, says, I'm going to come, Ar- 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 Xerxes, Artaxerxes, all this stuff. We talked about all that. And he says, I'm going to come to fix the, the wall. The reason he fixed the wall, the temple's already built. They're worshiping God, but, they're, but the surrounding is not taken care of. They're not being protected. So he says, the city officials, he didn't even tell them what he was doing. So the city officials did not know I had been out there what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to them about my plans. Let, let me just give you a little something here about this that I think is important at different times in your life. We're not going to drill down on this, but this, this is, I think, hugely important. I think sometimes when God is doing, and I think this is in a natural sense too, not necessarily in a God sense, but it's very profound on a spiritual sense. Sometimes what God is doing inside of you, and what God is try, trying to, to tell you and to to change or do whatever in your life, sometimes I think we verbalize those things prematurely to people around us. Because the people around us may not totally understand what, why, or any of that kind of stuff. I know for me, now guys, I've spent, I've spent uh, 28 years preaching, teaching, all of that kind of stuff in churches, okay? With that being said, sometimes I'll mull around through some scripture and, and process it and put, in fact, I was going over all my notes again today for stuff I've been putting in there for years. And I, it's too long to explain this, this system that I have on my computer, s- different files and different things of how I develop messages and stuff like that. And I, I've been doing this for years. So I, I was looking down through there. I do this at least once a month where I just go down and I just read everything in my, in my, origin, in my beginning file. And things that I know that God has, has kind of done inside my spirit, he's trying to do something with me or change me or, or a scripture that I read or something that, that I read and dropped into my file for like a, a website or something like that. And, and I was working down through this and realizing that there are things that God is doing with me that I've written down in there that he's still doing with me. And it would be premature for me to try to put that into a codified understanding to present to us as a body because 
God's not finished doing whatever he's trying to do, and I don't totally understand it all yet. I'm not saying I don't understand the scripture. I may totally understand a, a scripture that God has spoke to me, but not how he's speaking it to me, what he's doing with me in this. Does that make sense? So many of you have had these things happen in your life where you just know God is trying to do something, but I don't know, I don't know exactly what it is, or maybe I'm beginning to, but I don't know how to verbalize it yet. And I think sometimes we try to tell um, somebody or process this, and, and let, me, let me cut a little deeper here. I think sometimes as Christians, we have a, American Christianity has got an, a mindset, and we've got to understand everything and have it all in nice, neat little rows you know, you've heard me pick on this before. I don't preach sermons like seven ways to have better life in Christ or something like that. Why? Because I don't think there's almost anything in Scripture that you can put into three or four simple steps. I know that's American thinking. You know, our 12-step our program. I knew a lady one time that, that went through the 12-step program. And I had been talking to her about some different things. And she said, I'm going to go through this 12-step program. She texted me later that day. That day. Texted me later that day and said, this is really good. I'm glad you suggested it to me. I'm on step six. You know, I'm talking about Alcohol Anonymous, 12-step program. She said, yeah, I'm on step. I'm like, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You're on step six four hours later? Step six can take you six months. I'm on step six, working my way through it. Guys, we have such a, a quick cosmic microwave mentality in America that I can put everything in a nice three or four simple steps and I can solve all of life's problems. And I just don't think it's that simple. I think there's a lot more to this. I think life is much more um, uh, layered than that. And I think oftentimes what the Lord is trying to do with us is so layered and we just want boom, 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 boom. And so then what we do as Christians, and, and this is not healthy, we, as the Holy Spirit begins to open stuff up in our spirit and our life, we come across somebody with something similar. And, and this is what God's trying to do, but we've understood this much of it. And so we explain this to this other person like it's the full package. This is the final solution. And if you'll just figure this out and do exactly what I've done over the last two or three days, your whole life will be fixed too. And oftentimes what God is doing with us is layered. It's what He's going... Broken part of the wall by broken part of the wall by broken part of the wall. And we, and we don't always understand it, but we try to explain it to other people before we get it, before we really understand it. And sometimes it may take years for God to work through some things in our life. And then maybe we can begin to help somebody understand it. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with sitting down with somebody and saying, look, I'm going through similar things. I don't have a clue. Here's where I'm at. Where are you at? That's different. That's healthy. Because you can probably get some great insight from them. But that's not the way Christians come across sometimes, right? We usually come across as, oh, i got all the answers. Here they are. And they go, well, you know, I just don't know. Shut up. I'm talking. Right? I've got my, I've got my four-step plan. My pastor preached a message. You'd be amazed at how many times we do this. There's different scenarios where I do this. We sit down with our pastors um, every week, and we process the week before, and we'll talk about the message, and we'll talk about different things. And it's amazing to me how many times that sitting in that room with our pastors, and they say, Pastor, when you said this, when you said this, and everybody on the in, in there seems to be all on the same page with what I said. But that's not what I thought I was saying. It's not, I'm like, is that what you heard? Because that's not what I was trying to get across. 
This is what I was trying to, oh yeah, I didn't even really hear that. That's amazing to me how many times that, I, that I've heard that. Or people will come back and say to me, Pastor, remember a couple of weeks ago when you talked about this? Uh-huh. And you said this? Nope. Yeah, you said that. I don't think I did. Doesn't sound like me. But in their head, that's what they were heard. Now, here's the thing. There's a, couple, there's a good and bad with this. Sometimes people just don't listen. But sometimes, Holy Spirit's actually speaking to them about something that's not what I'm talking about. Because the Holy Spirit knows what they need. Well, talk to people, process, but don't try to wrap it up into a nice, neat little package. He says to, 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 to us here, he said, I knew what God had put in my heart. I knew what I was going to do, but I didn't tell anybody about it for a while because I needed to look at some things. I needed to analyze. I needed to walk around and look at the walls. I need to look at the brokenness. I need to see what the big picture is so that I could work on the little details instead of, you know, we walk up and see one detail and we begin to work on it. Lynn and our, our personalities are the opposite in this. Linda's very much a doer, and I'm very much a let her do it. So, so uh, she really is very action-oriented. Very, and and I, I think through things, and I process, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll say something like, okay, now here's it. And, and two minutes later, she goes, and she's off doing it and doing it. And, and, and I'm like, stop, just stand still. We're still in the talking phase. We're still in the, do we even want to do this phase? And she's over there, you know, making things and doing stuff, cutting stuff. I don't know. And, and, and you know, it's, I, in my head, I always hear this. I'm like, you know, Linda, we shouldn't hear it because it's a blowtorch. I'm like, we don't know if we need a blowtorch. No, I got it. I got the blowtorch. I mean, our personality is like the opposite in this. And I'm, and I'm mulling, and I'm like, and she's, she's already built something. I'm like, that's not even what we're doing. What are you talking about? Sometimes we can do that spiritually. We immediately begin to act, do, and, 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 and function, and, and have this. And, and then the Holy Spirit is saying, stop. I'm the role of the Holy Spirit in our marriage. So the Holy Spirit is saying, stop. Slow down. Maybe, maybe we could talk about this. Maybe there's more than just a moment of doing. <laughs> you didn't know the Holy Spirit could get in trouble. Now look at this again. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not said anything to anyone about my plans. I hadn't spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. Partly because I need to have a plan. I need to really know. I don't just want to, can, can we do this? I know he knew he could. But, but I wanted to get a scope of the magnitude of the, of the thing too. Verse 17, but now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. I love that sentence. You know very well what trouble we are in. Who said that just then? Nehemiah. How long had Nehemiah been in Jerusalem? Three days. Of his entire life, he had never been to Jerusalem. Remember, they had been uh, slaves to the, to the Medes and the Persians. Right? And he had lived in luxury. He was the, the king's cupbearer. He was the um, a, a, a voice of counsel and advice to the king. He's one of the king's inner circle of guys. He lived a very good life, a very posh life. Um, he was uh, admired very well. There, all of the different things that were involved in his life. He has been in Jerusalem for three days. And he says, look at the, the trouble that we are in. This is, this is huge for me. When the Holy Spirit 
steps into the middle of our existence, and that means we have to open ourselves up to him. When he steps into the middle of our existence, it immediately becomes we, no longer you. He will immediately make sure that you understand you are not alone. This is a we thing that we're struggling with here. This is a we. We're going to do this, and we're going to do this together. He doesn't try to speak down to these guys. He doesn't try to push his power and authority. Remember, he's got all these letters from the king. He had the soldiers come with him. All this different stuff. He's got, he's got resources from Lebanon that are headed this way. All, every, the, he's got the power and the authority of the, of the king of the Medes and Persians, which was the biggest empire on the planet at that time. He never says anything about that. He never, he never even alludes to that. First thing he says, <clears throat> you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. We are going to do this. And not only does he have a we mindset, but he also has, um, pragmatically, he applies that throughout his existence from that moment on. When we see somebody picking up rocks or carrying a spear and all the things we're going to look at over the next few weeks, he's right in there with them. He's working just as hard in doing all this. Now, for me, if we're looking at this as he's representing the Holy Spirit for us and our wall is the brokenness in our life and he's rebuilding this, and this is important. The Holy Spirit will step in the middle of this and it's a we thing. And not only is it we, but see, this is, this is another important aspect of, the, of we mentality. The scripture in the New Testament, Jesus says that God's yoke or Jesus, he's talking about himself really, he says, my yoke is easy. Now, what is the concept of a yoke? Okay, put something across your neck, put something across the other cow's neck, because <laughs> you're a cow. So you got your yoke on you, you got the other cow. So Jesus says when you put his yoke upon your neck, it actually becomes easy. It's not difficult. You're not pulling by yourself. But here's something else that Paul says uh, much later, talking about the same mentality of the yoke. He says that Paul has been spending his life kicking against the goads. For years and years as a kid, as an adult youth pastor, I had no idea what a goad was. I thought it was like a wall or something. With Literally, I know this makes me sound stupid, but I thought it was a wall that had like a bunch of goat head stickers on it. And you, didn't, you weren't, shouldn't be kicking against the goat heads. That's what I, I literally thought that's what that meant. I don't know how it came to that conclusion. Don't judge me. But here's what I realized goads were. You guys know what the goads are? You know, who does not know what a goad is? Good, I'm not the only dumb dumb in here. No, I'm just kidding. Here's, here's what I found out. So you got, you take two oxen. You got the, 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 the yoke. Okay, then you got the straps come back for the guy, and then you got the, the wires going down so that you can connect to maybe the oxen behind you, and you got this horses all together. There's a little bar that comes out behind the animal, the horse, the ox, whatever. There's a little bar that comes out across there. That's the goad. So what happens when, when the ox slows down a little bit? He kicks that with his foot as he's walking, and it's very uncomfortable, and it, and it causes the ox to push up. Okay, it causes him to move forward a little bit. Paul says, I spend all my life kicking against those goads, which means he's doing what? 
He's not pulling and walking like he should. He's dragging, and it's about him rather than about the team pulling forward. And so he's constantly kicking against those goads because he won't just do what he needs to do and get his life right. He's kicking against those goads. Well, Jesus says, when you yoke up with him, it will not be difficult. Why? Same concept that Nehemiah says here. Look at the trouble we are in. When, you, when the Holy Spirit steps into your life and you truly submit to him in different ways, that particular area of your existence, he yokes with you and he pulls with you. He doesn't pull you, but he pulls with you. And as long as you stay up with him, the way that, a, the, the, way that the yoke works is when you slack off, it pulls against your neck too. So now you get the goads and you get the pulling against your neck and all this other stuff. He says, if you, just, if you just get beside me, get in with me, and let's do this. We'll do this together. Which is really cool because I don't like the idea of somehow um, God is just going to be dragging me through life. I don't like that mentality. Like I'm, I have no, I'm nothing in this, then why did you make me? It, it, that's a whole concept, predestination. I don't believe in predestination. I don't like the idea of predestination. Scripture, I believe, doesn't teach it. Why? Because if it's all predestined, why am I here? You could have put a monkey in my place. You could have done anything else. But the reason he makes me is because I'm important to the subject. I'm important to today. I'm important to the context. And when he yokes up with me, he's going to do this with me. And that means he's going to trust me. And he's going to give me moments of opportunity to, to do great things, to, to excel. Sometimes I get to kind of pull more. Sometimes when I don't pull as much, he's still pulling me with him. But we're working together in this thing. When Nehemiah comes to them, he doesn't say, look, the walls are all torn down. You guys better fix it. He says, look what the trouble we are in. And we're going to fix this. We're going to rebuild these walls. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, here goes. So then he says, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about the gracious hand of God, how the gracious hand of God had been on me in my conversation with the king. So all the stuff we've been looking at over the last few months, the authority that the king gave, the letters to the province leaders, the letters to the uh, builder uh, supply groups, all these different... I told them God's hand had been on me when I walked into the king. Going back to the beginning of this, when I walked into the king and who was sitting there beside the king? Esther? When I walk into the king and, and Esther, God's woman for the hour that changed an entire country, she's sitting beside the king. God's hand was on me on everything. God's hand was on me on this whole thing. I told them about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, let's rebuild the wall. You know what he did when he sat down and tells them all this? This is a, this is a remember the titans moment. He gives, a, he gives a speech to these guys that says God is in charge of every bit of this. We can do this. We can do this. Yes, it's a big wall. This is a big city. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a, but we can do this you got to know it. you got to believe it. The king, who doesn't even care about God or the Jewish people, he's supporting me. He sent letters. He did all this other stuff. We're getting wood sent from Lebanon being floated down the river just for our walls. We can do this. And switch it. The Holy Spirit steps into our world and he says, I've got you. You're not by yourself. I've got you. 
God's going to make sure that you've got all the authority that you need. You've got everything that you need. He's going to provide the resources. Remember, broken resources, but also new resources. And he's going to make sure that you can do this. Let's rebuild this wall. And they said, let's rebuild it. So they began the work. Now here's the last few verses of this chapter. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem... Now we'd already heard about Sanballat and Tobiah, right? But we hadn't heard about Geshem yet. It's the first time Geshem comes into it. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked. And I replied... I love this reply, and I think you could, you could write this down and make this a reply to just about anything Satan tries to do in your life. He replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We are his servants. We will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or historical claim in Jerusalem. In other words, this ain't your business. Take it somewhere else. And this is what the Holy Spirit says to Satan when Satan tries to mess with us. You have no right. You have no legal right. You have no authority. Remember, Scripture says when Jesus dies on the cross and we're covered with the blood, he becomes the one that's in charge of us. He buys us with his blood. He purchases us with his blood. He redeems us out of Satan's hands into a right relationship with God, and he does that through his blood. And he says... Nehemiah says to these guys, you don't have any right here. We will rebuild this wall. There's nothing you can do about it. You have no right here. Get out of here. When you're looking at the stuff that's broken in your life, you're looking at the junk, you're going to, Satan will tell you over and over and over, it's final, you're done, you're beat up, you're, you're, you're nothing, you're all these different things. And you have the right and the authority, if, if Jesus is in charge of your life, you have the right and the authority to look at him and say, you have no legal right to me. You can't do this. Guys, I, I know I've had some questions. I haven't talked about this except that once Sunday, but Saturday morning we're having the funeral for, for my pastor friend that killed himself. I, I can't get this out of my head. This is breaking me in so many ways that I, I can't. Satan convinced him. Satan convinced him that Satan had a right there. Satan convinced him that his input about his physical life was valid. And he's not right. Satan does not have any legal right over you. Satan has no authority over you. But you've got to know it in your head. You've got to know it in your spirit. And, you, and I think you've got to say it out loud sometimes. Satan, you have no authority here. I'm not yours. I don't belong to you. I belong to Jesus. You have no authority over me. I am going to rebuild this wall. I'm going to build this stuff. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit be in charge. I'm going to let Jesus be in charge of me. I'm not going to listen to your lies. I'm not going to listen to your lies about me, about my spirit, my existence, my family, or anything else. I am going to, to, to stand with God, and you have no authority over me. You have zero legal right to be here. Why? I've been covered with the blood of Jesus, and I, am, I belong to him. I belong to Jesus. I don't belong to you. And you can say, you can use the words, the song that we've been seeing the last few weeks, I like it, fear, uh, he is a liar. I love that, fear, he is a liar. 
fear, I mean, fear comes from Satan, so it's the same thing, but sometimes we got to look at the actual objects. Fear, you have no authority here. You have no authority over me. Insecurity, you have no authority over me. Beat down mentality, you have no authority over me. I belong to the king that paid for me. He's my authority, and you're not. And there has to come a moment, guys, when, when, and I, not just a moment, I think this has to be constantly, constantly our existence. When Satan tries to tell you something, you do, you do exactly what Nehemiah says here again. We, his servants, will start building the wall. God of heaven will help us succeed. But you have no share, legal right, or historical claim to me. You have nothing to me. And I think that's where we've got to let that, that stand in our life. So we're going to pray. So with everything we've talked about, what are we going to pray about? What's rolling around in your spirit? What do you think we need to pray? Nothing? What was that, Anna? Listen to the Holy Spirit. Let, let him get in there. Let him get in your mind and your heart and start working on some things. I know it's not always fun and sometimes just flat out scary. I've been there. I've been there for whatever reason, not, not reading the Bible, but for whatever reason, my brother has been picking on me a lot lately with all these things. He told me the other day, you need to stop doing this and you need to start being a pastor. I'm like, John, you've got to give me a little bit of break here. But what he said was actually kind of right, sort of right. I told him. He's special needs, way, you know, he don't know. He's a little right. Let the Holy Spirit get in there. So you got to pray that, right? You, not me. You got to pray that about you. Lord, I need, I know, every one of us here, we know things. We know things that are not right. We know the areas. But are you willing for the Holy Spirit to get in there? Right now, it's just kind of a scratch on the back of our brain going, yeah, I probably need to do, ah, just whatever. Let the Holy Spirit get in your head and get in your heart and start working on some things. That's the first thing we're going to pray. What else? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. You know, when the pastor in California committed suicide a few weeks ago, I got a lot of phone calls and things. Pastor, are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. Um, when I mentioned this last week um, about this pastor, um, people called me, sent me emails. Pastor, are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. But I can tell you this. The reason that, that this pastor came and started talking to me is uh, 12, 15 years ago, I went through some really difficult depression, he, and he had heard about this through some other people. And that's why he called me. Guys, I know what it is to go through that. I'm, f- I'm fine right now. Don't, don't stop praying for me. I'm fine. I'm good. I, I've, I figured some things out in that time frame. But I do know this, that people around you are dealing with stuff. People around you every day are dealing with stuff. Pastors are dealing with stuff. They are. And I, I don't want to belabor this point. It's not what I'm trying to talk about tonight. But ch- churches can be mean, horrible to pastors. They can. Let me give you some examples. No, I won't. <laughs> but they can. You know, this, I know I always use this example because it's an easy one. When the waitress comes up to you at the restaurant and she's a little bit um, pithy, that's a real word. I said that one time my kids are like, Dad, you shouldn't say that, and you said it wrong. 
That's not, <laughs> pithy is a real word. So a little bit um, uh, aggravated. You don't know what's going on in their life. Pray for people. Talk to them. You don't know. I, we did this one time. Lynn and I were at a restaurant traveling from here to Texas. Stopped at this restaurant, and this lady was just mean, kind of cranky. And I just, I thought, well, you know, I'll just ask her. I said, you having a hard day? She just broke down and started crying. Her, um, her husband just died. She's got two kids at home, doesn't know what to do. The, the social service was talking about taking her kids away because she's just a waitress at this restaurant. I mean, she just literally took a chair, slid over the table, and sat down and talked to her for like 20 minutes, crying, bawling. I was... My, now, honestly, my first thought was, oh, why did I ask her? That, honestly, that was my first thought. But after I got past the horribleness that is me sometimes, we just talked to this lady and prayed with her, and our kids are right there with us, and they're talking and praying. And, and you don't know what people are dealing with. You don't know. Pastors are just one category, but you don't know. People need Jesus. They need his love. They need his grace. They need that peace in their heart and their mind. So, so pray for people. Talk to people. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us out. What's something else we need to pray about? I would say the next step is not only let the Holy Spirit in there, but when, when Holy Spirit, when you start showing me things, help me go there. Because that's so difficult. Help me go there. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for you and how much you love us. God, I thank you because your plan is so big and sometimes we just don't get it. God, most of the time we just don't get it. God, and we fight. We fight so much against what you're trying to do. We try to fight for our own life and our own plan. And God, help us to let go and let you, to yoke up with you and let you be in charge. God, help us to surrender ourself to you more and more every day. And, and mentally and emotionally too, Holy Spirit, we ask you, Help us to open up and let you, let you in to our existence. Not just talk to you like you're in a distance, but open our mind and our spirit up and let you get in there and start working through some things. Lord, making us healthy, making us who you want us to be. God, to work on some of the sin issues and some of the insecurity issues and, and some of the brokenness all through our lives. Lord, help us to let you get in there. And not only let you get in there, but then, Lord, truly let you start working. God, we thank you. We want, that, we want that fresh water every day. We want that, that freshness from you every day. God, sometimes that's, that's elusive. God, help us to go there. Cover us with your blood, Jesus. Cover us with your blood and wash us clean and forgive us and make us right with God. God, we thank you. We thank you for caring enough to plan this whole thing, to plan the cross for us. Thank you for loving us this much, Jesus. Lord, we want to do the best we can to respond. And God, and I pray for every one of us in here, when Satan comes and tries to attack our life, that we take a stand and say, you have no right here. You have no authority here. You've got to go. In the name of Jesus, we pray that. Not in our own name, not in our own authority, but in the name of Jesus. We thank you. And God, I do ask you to touch the the family of uh, my pastor friend. They need you. They need you this week so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks for the, I was about to call them the interns, but they're not interns. They're students.
The interns didn't show up. Did any of the interns show up? None of them? No, sir. No, sir. That's sensitive. I know it's okay, buddy. So, um, so thanks. Let's give them a hand for sitting through this. And uh, you guys are done. You're dismissed. See you some other time besides today. I see.